0: Today we're going to be looking at Philippians again, we continue, if you want a title for this message it's Christ Captivated Fruit and I'd be grateful please if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Now if you're new to Sovereign Grace or you've been missing over the last few weeks then what you won't be aware is that we're actually on week 5 of this Philippians series already. So let me just talk you through this opening chapter to bring us all up to speed. This chapter begins with what really is a pregnant prelude. It says above your Bible, greeting. And it is a greeting, but it's more than just a greeting. It is a pregnant prelude. In this greeting, Paul really introduces the Philippian church and indeed us to the three main themes that he's going to be going through in this entire letter. So he looked at what it is to be a slave to Christ, what it really means to be owned and sit under Christ's leadership and headship. He talks about sainthood, how we are Christians or what that really means. And he talked about grace and peace. That's this desire as we read this letter and engage with this letter. He wants the lasting fruit in our hearts and our lives to be our experience and knowledge of grace and peace. In verses then three to 11, he spends time just sharing his heart with the Philippian church and prays for them. And I love that. It's where he really discloses once again what a affectionate and loving pastor he is. This is a church he planted many years ago. He's now in prison himself. They're writing to him to share their heart with him. Apaphrodites has been sent by the Philippian church and he's writing back in response to that. And right at the start he lets them know how much he loves them How grateful grateful before God he is for them and indeed his hope in God for them. And then understanding from verse 12 onwards through to the end of chapter 1 that really they're going to be troubled for him. Paul is their friend. He's in prison. He wants to reassure him that he's doing well and that the gospel really is going forward in Rome as a result of his imprisonment. And so as Brendan pointed out for the last couple of weeks, I just thought he did a wonderful job. The first message wasn't recorded. The second message was. And I was just affected. I just thought he did an outstanding job. In this whole premise from verse 12 onwards, he's talking to them about how the gospel is going forward in the Imperial Guard, in Caesar's household, The actual people in Rome, men and women, are starting to preach the gospel all more boldly because of Paul's chains. And so he wants the Philippian church to know, look, this is good. This is a good thing. The gospel is going forward, even despite my chains here in Rome. And in these verses then that we're reading today, 18b through to the end of verse 26, he's talking to them still about that same thing. And he wants them to know in particular where he's come out with regard to the meaning of his whole life what his life's really about, and why then he's so encouraged, even though he's in chains. He says this then, verse 18b and onwards, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word, we do so expectantly. We do so desirously because it's in your word that you speak to us. This is sharper than a double-edged sword. It can pierce our souls in a moment. And Lord, I I pray that that's what would happen today. Father, I ask you, you, would you send the Holy Spirit to us afresh that we may be pointed to Christ and him crucified afresh? Would our hearts be changed and quickened and affected as we gather around your holy word. Lord, would we hear you. Amen. You know, one thing that is like super obvious as you study the book of Philippians and as you study all of Paul's letters is that Paul is without doubt totally and utterly captivated by Christ. In everything he does, he's just, he's just obsessed with Jesus Christ. And, and that isn't all the, ways the way it used to be. You see, we're introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7 and in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to Paul as the one who is ravaging Christianity. The one who is working against Christianity. It says there in Acts chapter 7 that he is literally ravaging the church, meaning in the Greek that he is tearing the church apart like a wild animal. And that's what this apostle, this letter writer, was once like. He loved to kill Christians. When we we're introduced to him, he's there at the, at the stoning of Stephen. And he's there just holding people's coats and smiling. As he's aware, this guy being killed for the faith. I'll hold your jacket so you can pick up stones. Go on, you have a go. He loves to see Christians killed. He wants to quench Christianity. And that's why he goes to Damascus. Because he's where Christians have started to move out from Jerusalem. He wants to move out with them. He wants to go there and find women and children and men and arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem so that they can be in jail and hopefully martyred for their faith. That's this apostle. He's effectively a terrorist against Christianity. He hates Christianity. And yet on that road to Damascus, he was knocked off the horse by Jesus himself Jesus comes in a bright light. In that moment, Paul is blinded by the light. He hears the words of Jesus himself. And in that ensuing moment, he gives his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He becomes dramatically a Christian. He's aware that he's been persecuting God himself through Jesus. And so, at that moment, he gives his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, he is totally and utterly captivated by Christ. He wants everything to be about Jesus. He wants all glory in his life to be about Jesus. He wants all pointing in his life to be towards Jesus. He is obsessed and captivated and amazed by Jesus Christ Himself. Jeff Perswell, a dear friend, says it this way. He says, for Paul, the meaning of life is Christ. For Paul, existence on earth and how we go about day to day means Christ. Christ is the central controlling reality for Paul. Christ is the determining factor in Paul's worldview. For he is the meaning of our lives. He is the point of our lives. As far as Paul is concerned, that's what it's all about. It's all about Christ and Him crucified. It's all about pointing to the fame and glory of Jesus Christ. He is amazed with Jesus. He is enthused with Jesus. He is captivated by Jesus. Now, why does that matter when it comes to this text? Now, here's why it matters. Because in this text that I've just read out to you, I believe what we have here is a picture of the fruit that comes through this kind of Christ captivated life. A picture of what it looks like when somebody is totally captivated and besotted with Jesus Christ. A picture of the way it works in somebody's life, the effects in somebody's life, the fruits in somebody's life, when they are truly captivated by Jesus Christ. And it's a picture, I believe, that we can see that we can see placarded before our eyes. And if we are looking closely, we can be deeply affected by in and of itself. You see, Paul is a wonderful church planter and a preacher and a theologian. He seems to do everything really well. He's quite a guy. He's definitely a very gifted guy. He's also a wonderfully loving and affectionate pastor. He, he loves the Philippian church, and that's obvious in the way he communicates, not only in the opening section of this letter, but actually all the way through, as we'll see as we go through it. And yet fundamentally, at root level, Paul is just a flesh and blood guy like us. He's not like the Trinity, you know. he's not the, the fourth part of the quadrinity somewhere. You know, he, he's just a guy. He's just a regular guy like like the rest of us. He knows what it is to cry. He knows what it is to laugh. He, He knows what it is to sin. He knows what it is to blow it in his life, both before he became a Christian and as he became a Christian. He knows what it is to walk through his life wanting to please Jesus with all his life, but knowing the struggle of that and the pressures that come with life. He is not part of the Godhead. He's a guy. And that's why I think this passage has been put here to us and given to us by God himself. That's why I think this passage is God-breathed. Because I think in this passage God is giving us a section of scripture which is God-breathed, not just given to inform us as to what Paul was like, where we can go, oh, that's really interesting that, that he was like. I believe it's been entrusted to us by God and breathed out by God, not to inform not just to inform us but to invite us to invite us and challenge us as if to say, you know what, if you're Christians, like Paul is a Christian, then this type of fruit is for you as well. This type of way of life and thinking is not just for an apostle, it's for, for all those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's why I believe this section of scripture is here, the reason why he's given us it not only just so you can inform us about Paul, but so that we can be invited to emulate Paul and understand from Paul and seek to emulate Paul. And so the way we're going to pursue this morning is I want us to look at the three fruits, the three fruits of what it means to be captivated by Christ in this text. And then I'm just going to close briefly by way of conclusion by looking at how do we cultivate those fruits in our lives? How can we position ourselves like Paul to then bear those fruits that Paul was bearing. So what are the fruits? Well, number one is the first fruit that I think we see very quickly and easily in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Number one, an ambition for the honor of Christ. When someone is totally captivated by Christ, when they're totally in love with Christ, here's what I think the first fruit is. It's an ambition for the honor of Christ. Look with me at verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What's my ambition? What's my hope? What do I want in my life? What is my eager expectation and hope? What is my ambition? What am I trying to do? Here's what I'm trying to do that Christ, I want to ensure that Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul's ambition in his life is that Christ's renown and fame and glory would increase and expand and intensify through the way he lives. That's his ambition, that Christ, that Jesus himself would be glorified and honored in all the circumstances of his life. So in the way he lives, and potentially even in the way he dies, he wants to ensure that he is signposting everybody to Christ and him crucified. That Jesus Christ would get the glory. That that he would be the one that is placarded above everybody's eyes because of the way he's living. And that's his hope. That's his ambition. I don't want to be ashamed. I want to ensure that Christ is honored in my life. I want to ensure that everybody sees Christ through my life. As I I was studying... This this week and thinking about the way Paul was living, what other man that that reminded me of the apostle Paul and the way he's living here is John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist, when you interact with him in John chapter three, is an incredibly popular and famous man. John the Baptist, you know, rocking on the scene before Jesus is like a cult hero of Palestine. In first century Palestine, if there really were papers, then on the front page and the second page and the third page, you'd be seeing photos of John the Baptist. And he's like the David Beckham of the day. You know, everything is about John the Baptist. They all want to hang out with John the Baptist. He's an incredibly famous man. So everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows what he's doing. Everybody wants to meet John the Baptist. And so in the Gospel of Luke, we read that multitudes went out to hear John. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read that people came to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. There's just this picture all the time of masses and masses of people wanting to see John, wanting to hear John, wanting to be baptised by John. And things are going great for John. John's got some disciples, they're rocking it up. Until Jesus appears on the scene. John baptises Jesus. Jesus starts to increase in his popularity. And as you interact with John later on in chapter 3, John's disciples have got a bit of a concern for John. And the concern is this, John, you may not have noticed, um, but this, this guy, Jesus, all the people that used to follow you are following him. All the people that used to come out and hear you are starting to follow him. John, you may not have noticed, but on the front page of the Palestinian Times is no longer you. It's Jesus. And so what are we going to do about it? How are we going to get these people to come back to us? How are we going to ensure that you're still a rock star for the rest of your life? Because, John, we're with you. We're with you, John boy. We're a Johnite. And John just says to them very clearly, i tell you what we're going to do. We're going to do nothing. Because this situation is great. Because I must decrease. And he must increase. Sorry John, it sounded like that you're happy. That your popularity is waning. That's because I am. I must decrease. He must increase. It's always been about him. I've been preparing the way for him. So the fact that all these people are going from me to him, that is the greatest joy of my entire life because it's always been about him. And now we see the Apostle Paul here in these verses in effect saying exactly the same. You know what? This is my ambition, that whether in life or death, Jesus would be honoured in my body. That it would all be about Him. Because I must decrease and He must increase. If everything that is happening is causing for Jesus' glory to go forward, then I'm thrilled. Because I just want it to all be about Him. I want Him to be honoured in my life. It's a good thing. You know, I was thinking about it some more this week. And I realised that, you know what, in all reality, for us as Christians, unless you're very different from me, which you may be. But for us as Christians, this is a sobering and challenging picture, isn't it? Because it's a life that says, it's not about my honor. It's about his honor. I'm not bothered for myself. I'm bothered for him. That's sobering. And that's challenging. So I remember saying a few weeks ago, you don't usually have to teach your children the word mine comes quite naturally. You know, I don't know why that is, but the words are mum, dad, and in between, the word mine seems to appear. And think, What's this all about? It's just something inherent in us. It's like, well, this is mine. What about me? And the truth is, I think it sticks with us as we get older. It's just we, we do better at hiding it. Because we can't help but want at least some honor for ourselves. Have you noticed that? And I think you notice it most when you don't get it. So you know, I've noticed that I don't even get encouraged in a way I think I should. I'm not very happy about it really. I don't really like this church anymore. You know, I was busy serving the other week and no one even acknowledged me. Okay. So it's not really about Jesus and it's about, it's about, it's about you being honored. And, well, I'm just very disappointed about the care I've not received. Um, you know, it's, you know, I deserve care because I'm part of the church, and okay, okay. So, so it's all about it's all about you, and you know, I'm aware of it in my life sometimes, and the, through preaching, and I have to battle this at different times. You know, there's a desire to to generally sit under the word and and preach it to you so that you may be affected by Christ. That that is the the preeminent drive in my life, and yet at different times, this is what I can feel. What will they think of me when I say that? And maybe I could change that a bit because that bit's funnier if I put that bit in because that make, maybe they'll like me better if I do that. In a Romans chapter 7 when Paul says, you know, I, the very things I want to do are the things I don't do. and The very things I don't do are the things I know I should do. And he's describing this battle. And his premise is, oh, oh what wretched man I am. When will I be released from this body of death? Because he's aware there's a battle that goes on in his heart. He wants to honor Christ But he's aware also there's a desire for honour for himself and I can relate to that. And I think we can all relate to that in different ways, don't we? When we don't get encouraged or responded to or cared for or acknowledged in the way that we think we should. But then we encounter Paul in this picture and I think it is provoking and sobering. See, he's in jail. He's given his whole life to following Jesus Christ. He's given his whole life to preaching and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But he is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he has heard, as you read in verse 15, that there are some people in Rome preaching the gospel because they love Christ, but there's some people preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry towards Paul. What they're effectively doing is going, Paul, you're in jail. Ha-ha! Well, I'm going to preach it anyway. Because as I preach it, people look to me like they used to look to you. Unlucky, Paul. Can you imagine that? Praise God they didn't have Facebook in those days. Can you imagine? Oh, there they are preaching again. Thanks. But that's what they're like. They want to rub it in for Paul. They're basically saying, Paul, you know, thanks for everything. Thanks for all this time, but it's our time now and you're in jail. Unlucky, son. But this is Paul's response. Imagine what that would feel like. Verse 18. What then? This is my response. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. He's saying, you know what, it hasn't worked out the way I would have wanted it. I haven't been honored in the way that maybe I should have been having given my life to Jesus Christ. But I don't care. Because the gospel has gone forward and Christ is being glorified and ultimately that's what my life is about. My life, whether it be in life or death, is resolved around an ambition for the honor of Christ. And through their preaching, whatever the motive, Christ is being honored. So I'm rejoicing. Because it's not about me. It's about Christ. And so Philippians, you want to know how I feel about what they're doing, the way they're preaching the gospel? I'm rejoicing. I'm thrilled. The name of Christ is being proclaimed. It's an attractive fruit, isn't it? It's so attractive that he managed to live in such a way that it wasn't about him. It was about Christ. It's about the name of Christ going forward and that's the first fruit, an ambition for the honour of Christ but that's not all we see. The second fruit of a Christ-captivated life is this, an absence of the fear of death. God, this is beautiful. Look at verse 21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know, this is one of the most bizarre verses in the whole of the Bible, where you actually bottom out what he's really saying. See, what he's doing is musing on really two possible outcomes of his prison. He knows at the end of the prison he's going to be tried and he's musing on two potential outcomes. Outcome one is that he's released from prison and can therefore go about the task once again of planting and building local churches. He's aware if I'm released from prison, I'll be free again. I can go see the different churches that I played a part in planting. I can see my friends... I can be with these people again. I can enjoy fellowship with them. I can enjoy feasting with them. I can enjoy drinking with them. I can enjoy laughter with them. I can give my life once again to helping bring Christ and Him crucified into their lives. Sounds great. The other outcome is that he is condemned to die. And therefore, Paul knows full well that if that is the case, he would be taken out into an arena where thousands would be gathered. He would be paraded around and mocked. He would then be set free, and they would basically have lions that had been provoked provoked and hungry. They would run into the auditorium. The lions would eventually corner him. They would sink their teeth into his neck. They would maul his body. He would die a painful death, and then his dead body would be dragged outside of the Colosseum. And his body would be put into a mass grave where vultures would live on his body for several days. Two possible outcomes. Paul's response? I can't decide. (laughs) Do you see how intense this is? Okay, so to live I can serve the church to die. Colosseum. Yeah, I don't know is difficult for me? It's hard to discern what would be best to do. You know, it makes you wonder, is Paul on some type of death wish or something? You know, what is he on? Or does he just like pain? Is he one of these masochist people? He's just like, yeah, it sounds fun. I mean, what's what what's going on in his head to say to live as Christ and to die is gain? What is he discerning or understanding as a fruit of being captivated by Christ that causes him quite genuinely to honestly say, I don't know. I submit to you, it's this. The reason is that he is a man who has been so captivated with Jesus Christ, he can't wait to be with him. He longs to be with Jesus. He longs to be with the one that when he was struck off that horse on the way to Damascus, he longs to see him for himself. See, Paul knows that he has been made for a person and a place. And he knows that place is heaven and he knows that person is Jesus Christ. And so to die for him, that's, that's gain. See, Paul knows full well that heaven is a place where there will be no more pain, no more arthritis or mental illness or speech disorders or cancer or AIDS or tooth decay or blindness or hearing disorders, but instead a place that will be filled with laughter, There will be no more sin in heaven or death or corruption. But instead, within heaven, there will be one big explosion of joy. And he knows it. He knows that in heaven there will be feasting together and drinking together. There will be music there and worship there. It will be paradise to explore. Trees and fields and seas and beaches and glaciers and plantations. All the things that we see just as a foretaste in this earth. He's aware there will be greater adventures to be had in heaven he's aware that in that day he will receive a new body he's not just going to become an angel or a ghost but he's going to have a body and a soul and in his body he will be able to see and hear and smell and taste and run and walk and play with glorious perfection in a way that he never has to be able to do he's never been able to do here and he won't be alone there will be angels he's aware that he will be able to encounter noah and abraham And Enoch, and David, and Solomon, and Joshua. He's aware that he'll be able to meet all these guys, Christians from every tribe, and language, and nation. But the fundamental reason why for Paul there is no fear in death, why to die is gain. Because he's aware that when my eyes close in death, the first eyes I will see after death are his. The one I'm captivated by. The one I'm giving my life for. The one whom I want to live for. The one whom I want to meet more than anybody else in my life. So to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Wayne Grudem says that in the moment when we see Jesus Christ's eyes, our hearts will want for nothing else. And Paul says, you know what, I agree with that. And so, to live, to come back and serve the church, or to die even though it would be a painful death, I can't decide. I can't decide what I want to do. And therein, I think, lies the second fruit of what it is to be captivated by Christ. The second fruit of an absence of the fear of death. Because when you're captivated by Christ, you know that when that moment comes, the first eyes you will see will be His. The one who died for you. The one who called your name. The one who bled in your place. The one who you bowed the knee to, taking Him as Savior and Lord. And when you're captivated by somebody, you just want to be with them, don't you? Then there's another fruit, number three. final fruit. Number three, a heartfelt desire to serve others. That's the third thing that I think comes into our life when we're truly captivated by Christ. A heartfelt desire to serve people. See, Paul in this text, his headline statement is to live as Christ and to die as gain. He, he can't discern what would be best for him to do. That's the way he's musing it. But then he says this in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, for the Apostle Paul, he has been musing over whether or not he would rather live or die. But in verse 25, he is convinced of something. There is something he is convinced of. In the midst of his musings, he is convinced of something and he is convinced that he will have the joy of remaining in the flesh because that would be more necessary on their account. And so he wants them to know then that it will be his great joy and his great passion once he is out of prison to come and serve them again. Why? For their progress and joy in the faith. And he wants them to know that will be a great joy to do that. If that's what the Lord has for me, then that's great. You see, for Paul, to live as Christ is not just a slogan. You know, it's not just something that's sort of, oh yeah, there's Paul, the guy who said, you know, to live is Christ. That's not the issue. He's not sitting around in a prayer group going, all I want to do is live as Christ. And then you perceive that person to be living for anybody else but Christ the rest of the time. When you account them again, they go, "What I want to do is live as Christ. It's not a slogan over his life. It's something he's actually doing in his life. To Paul to live is Christ. To Paul, while he has the privilege of walking the earth, all he wants to do is serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a truth that propels him then to be like Christ. He wants to emulate Jesus. He wants to be like the one who died for him. He wants to be like the one who called his name. He wants to serve with his entire life Jesus Christ. And how do we see that? Here's how we see it in a heartfelt desire to serve others. Because he's aware, well, I'm on earth and my whole life is Christ. What does that mean? It means my whole life is others. I'm going to serve others to strengthen them in their faith. I'm going to lay my life down to give them hope. I'm going to seek to bring joy to people. Nowhere do we see this Christ-captivated life more clearly, I think, than in the way Paul serves. You know, the truth is the desire to serve others and prefer others and even to consider others more important than ourselves it's a sobering call on our lives, isn't it? And it's hard, isn't it? It doesn't necessarily come naturally. And I think when we experience that in our lives, one of the comforting things, I think, is that we find ourselves in the context of the Bible in good company. Take the disciples, for example, in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has just said for the third time that he's going to die. He has now set his face like a flint towards Calvary. He's just informed the disciples, men that he's walked with for three years, that when we get there, the Son of Man, me, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die in your place. And James and John turn around in that moment and go, yeah, I've been thinking about that moment. when You know, that, that thing about when we get to Jerusalem. When you get there, can I sit at your right and my brother sit at your left? It's one of the most bizarre moments in scripture. You think, he's just told you that he's going to be giving his life for you. Yeah, I got that. Thanks for checking in. But I'm just wondering, when you get there, can I sit to your right and your left? They still, they're not even listening to what the Saviour is saying. They're convinced that when he gets there, he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to usher in a great kingdom. And they're aware that when that kingdom comes, I want to be somebody, right? So can I sit to your right and can I sit to your left? Because I know it's all about you, you can have the middle seat, but then after you, well, it's probably me, so I want to sit at your left or your right. And then come the disciples, and you think, oh, thank you, Jesus, for these disciples. There's ten of them. Surely, they're going to minimally beat James and John up in this moment and try and console the Saviour for the rudeness of these two men. And the ten come over, and they are indignant. And you think, this is good. They're going to have a word to James and John. And they have a word... Their premise is, the other ten, James and John, how dare you do this? Because we wanted to sit at his right and his left. They're indignant with what are they doing, getting it first. You know, what about me? What must that have felt like for the Savior in that moment? I've just given three years to you. And you're arguing about where you're going to sit. And the truth is, I have to guard my heart from being self-righteous towards those disciples. Because self-righteousness says, well, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. But I submit to you, we probably would have. Because we can be a selfish people. We can fail to grasp what people are saying clearly. We can think the whole world revolves around me. And so what about me when that happens? And yet in Mark chapter 10... The Saviour looks at his disciples in his eyes and looks into our eyes as well informs us and graciously and patiently says this to them. He says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Savior looks at them in their eyes and says, Guys, it's not about you taking a place. If you want to be great, that's wonderful. That means serving. That means being a slave of all. It means taking the lowest of the low jobs just to prefer others. It means doing whatever you can for the good of other people. And I submit to you, it's the Apostle Paul then as a man who is captivated by Christ that seeks to take that instruction and model it in his life. And so as a fruit of being captivated by Christ... He then has a heartfelt desire to serve others. And so he's communicating to them, to be honest, I would rather die ultimately because that would be the end of my life and then I would be with Christ. But I'm kind of convinced it's going to be better for you for that not to happen. That's what I can tell as far as I can tell. And so I'm going to be coming back and I'm going to serve you and I want you to know that's going to be a pure joy to do because my life is about Christ. and So I love serving because I want to be like him. Now, my friends, these fruits are certainly attractive and desirous, aren't they? To live is Christ, to die is gain. An ambition for the honor of Christ, a heartfelt desire to ensure that Christ is honored in all things, followed by a heartfelt desire then to serve others. As an expression of that love for Christ, we serve people just like he did. And knowing that when my eyes then close in death on that final day, I have nothing to fear because I will see His face. I will be with the Savior that died for me. My whole life can be about Him. That's attractive and desirous as fruit in our lives, isn't it? It's desirous and attractive in our lives. So here's my question to close. How can we cultivate this fruit in our lives? How can we actually cultivate it and see it come about in our lives. Well, I want to encourage you, this doesn't come under the must-try-harder category. There's not a list of things that you think, I've just got to try and muster something up so I can feel like that. No, it doesn't work like that. The way we cultivate this type of fruit in our lives, I think, is as follows. Listen, we cultivate this fruit in our lives by building our lives around the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We position ourselves around Calvary. We can cultivate it by positioning ourselves around the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's example. It's not like a, a secret. You just read the Bible and there it is. The way Paul lived that cultivated and fueled this captivation with Jesus Christ. In the book of Corinthians, Paul said, I deliver to you as of first importance that Christ Died for our sins, and then later on he says, "I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified." For Paul, his whole life was built around the gospel, around Jesus Christ in His death and in His resurrection. To the book of Ephesians, then, Paul, a church that he planted himself, he's been with them for 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 several years, preaching them about the gospel week after week after week. He leaves them, he writes to them. What does he communicate to them? Well. I'm going to give you three chapters all about Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to tell you about Jesus and what He's done for you and the fruit that that's going to give you in your lives. To Timothy then, his his child in the faith. When Paul was about to die and he knew his death was now imminent, he writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher as a Timothy. As I pass this baton to you, as you now run with this gospel, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Timothy, make your whole life about the gospel. Timothy, keep first things first. Timothy, ensure that the gospel is not fumbled in your ministry, but keep the gospel central in all of your communication with people, in all of your life, watch your life and doctrine closely, and surround the gospel through your life. See, for Paul, his whole life was built around the gospel. What's the fruit of that? I'll tell you what the fruit of that is. He is built around the gospel. He encounters Jesus Christ and Him crucified almost daily. And because of that, he is captivated by Christ. He's so affected by the gospel and so builds it into his life that he cannot help but be affected by Christ as he encounters Him daily as he considers daily what Christ has done for him. And as a fruit of that, what we see then is an ambition to honor Christ in his life, a heartfelt desire to serve others in his life, and an absence of the fear of death. How? By building his life around the gospel. He's so affected all the time as he gathers around. This is what Jesus did for me. It affects me. It affects me to the point where I'm captivated by Christ, and when I'm captivated by Christ, all I want to do is live for Him, and so to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. John Stott says it this way. He says the cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our life of our life is kind of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough to it for the sparks to fall on us. I think he's right. The cross is a blazing fire but we have to build our life around it and get close enough to it so the sparks can fall on us so that our love for Christ is kindled. And so just in closing, some brief bullet points of how you might want to do that. Four things very quickly. Number one, regularly review the gospel. My friends, if you want to position your lives around Calvary, I want to encourage you to regularly review Review the gospel. Jerry Bridges talks about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. I think he's about right. We need to regularly review the gospel. So I'm all for people reading through the Bible in a year and doing all that stuff. I think it's great. We want to be encountering God in His Word daily across the whole breadth of His Word. And yet I also want to encourage you as you examine God's Word, never be far away from the gospels. And never be far away from Galatians. And never be far away from Romans. Because it's in these books where the gospel is ever more clear. And the sparks of the cross fall on us ever more clearly. If we really then want to live around the gospel, let us, we need to regularly review the gospel. Books like The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Just outstanding. The Atonement by Leon Morris. Just books that we can regularly give ourselves to so that the sparks of the cross can fall on us. Number two, regularly sing the gospel. And you may have a good voice, you may not. But when I say sing the gospel, I primarily mean listen to songs around the gospel, unless you're my wife in the shower, and then you sing the gospel with a lot of passion. One of the things we do in our home is we do listen to a lot of Christian music. And somebody a while ago asked me why we do that. And the primary reason is because I want to build a home and make sure that we are surrounded in a home with music that is going to allow the sparks of the cross to fall on my life and my wife's life and my children's life each and every day. It's not that that's the only music we listen to. We listen to lots of different music. But I want our lives to be defined by something that really matters. And music is a powerful, powerful thing. It's amazing how quickly children start singing music. What do you want them to sing? What do you want their anthems in their lives to be? Get good music into their ears. Music about Christ and Him crucified. It's one of the things I love about Sovereign Grace music, personally, because there's a lot about Calvary. There's a lot about what He's done. We want that in our lives. Number three, regularly reflect on the gospel. Regularly consider what the gospel has done in your life. The Apostle Paul never forgot his salvation. And it's so intriguing when he writes to the different churches how many times he says the word, remember. He wants them to be reminded of, can you remember the time when God saved you? Because it's when we review that that life makes more sense, isn't it? It's so easy to get bogged down with life and think that secondary things are primary things and secondary things are the most important things in their life. And then somebody in your life group says, so tell us about how you came to know Jesus Christ. And you tell the story, and as you even say it, you think, you know what? That thing that I've been worried about, I think I may have got it out of perspective. It's not that it's not there, it is. But it's not the be all and end all. It's Christ has died for us. So we need to regularly reflect on the gospel, and finally, regularly, in light of the gospel, ask the Lord for help. Friends, even in this, we need the Lord's help, don't we? We need his grace. We need, us to, we need him to assist us so that we can really understand the gospel and understand it in an increasing way so that our passion for Christ and him crucified can grow. So regularly ask him for help. Lord, help me. Help me understand your word. Help me as I give myself to these chapters this morning. Help me to open my eyes to what you've done for me, Lord. Assist me. And here's then what I think you can anticipate. If you truly regularly do those things, I submit to you, you will find that you are building a lifestyle that allows the sparks of the cross to fall on you each and every day of your life. And you will find over time that you will become captivated by Christ. He will be the be-all and end-all in your life. And you will find as that happens, these fruits become your story an ambition to honor Christ in all things a lack of the fear of death in your life and a desire to serve others, realizing it's not about me. It's about him. Let's pray. Lord, I I want to begin by thanking you for Paul. Lord, he's just a man, but I thank you for his life. And just like as if he's a man that was a part of our church, I want to thank you for him. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his model. Thank you for his life. And Lord, I thank you that you have breathed this scripture into our lives so that we could be invited to emulate him. Lord, would Paul not just be a cult hero in our lives to look up to? Would he be a fellow traveler that we're invited to walk with? And oh Lord, would You help us to build the gospel into our lives like Paul did. Lord, would You help us to gaze at Calvary regularly in our lives, in word, in song, in review, and with the sparks of Calvary ignite a love for Your Son each and every day of our lives. Our oh Lord, with this fruit, then, be our fruit, not because we've tried harder but just because we positioned ourselves around Calvary and become captivated by Christ. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. but that be our story in Jesus' precious name.